This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 418th episode, we have a brand new discovery, which was just published last Friday. Mm -hmm. And that's a tyrannosaur new to science. Yes, and it's really exciting because it helps show how one tyrannosaur evolved into another. Yes, we'll get more into that with our interview with the describers and people who found the fossil, and that's Elias Warshaw and Denver Fowler. But before we do that, we have a whole bunch of news from SVP, including a lot of stuff from the Theropod session, which was very fruitful this year. There were tons of really cool discoveries. There was a lot of talk about Meraxes and other really cool dinosaurs, which have been named and have not yet been named. Mm -hmm. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Poikilopleuron. So it's a theropod heavy episode. Yes. I think sometimes we pronounce poikilopleuron, poikilopleuron, or pokilopleuron, but I think the most accurate way to say it is probably poikilopleuron, even though it's spelled P-O-E. Anyway, <laughs> before we get into all that, real quick, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep our podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Jonah, Greg, Histologysaurus, Jeremy Stevens, Jackson Crawford, Ankylo Solis, Velociraptor, Jurassic Jim, Dino Mo, and Amato Titan. Awesome. Thank you so much for being part of our community and helping us keep the show going. So jumping into the news, we're going to do all these amazing theropod talks that we saw on the last day of the SVP conference, although we still have some more SVP stuff to cover. Oh yeah, don't worry. There's plenty <laughs> left to talk about. I think we've got a whole bunch of posters to talk about. There were there were some super cool ones. So kicking it off, we've got a couple talks about Meraxes. So if you remember, Meraxes Gigas was named very recently. It's a huge Carcharodontosaurid, which is from Argentina. It's named after that Game of Thrones dragon. So I went down a whole thing about the different giant dragons in Game of Thrones when it was discovered. Super cool. So there was a presentation by Peter Makovicki. He was talking about his last 18 years of work in Argentina, collaborating with local paleontologists and early scientists, which have culminated in over 10 expeditions, naming five new taxa all in that period of time. And that was all in the Nuken Basin, which is a place we talk about a lot, largely due to him and his team and other co-authors. Some of the other dinosaurs from the Nuken Basin include Giganotosaurus, Scorpio Venator, Gualicho, Mapusaurus, and Buitri Raptor. Some big names in there. 
Yes, they didn't all coexist. They were at different ages within the formation because this is one of the formations that deep enough where they didn't all overlap. You know, it's many millions of years. But back to Meraxes. Meraxes was actually discovered in 2012. Like a lot of dinosaurs, it takes a while to prepare them. It was actually found on the first day of their field season. Nice. <laughs> but even though they found it on the first day of the field season, it took them quite a few seasons to get it out because it was in some really hard sandstone and there was also some mudstone right below it oh. and it got like stuck to the bottom of the bones and it just sounded... You gotta be careful. You don't want to destroy the fossils while trying to get them out of the ground. Exactly. So it was a task for them, <laughs> but they did get it out and obviously published it this year. The histology was published in Proceedings B and they estimate its age was pretty wide range but between 45 and 70 years old that's pretty old it is old and that's this is your frequent reminder that carcharodontosaurids lived a lot longer than things like tyrannosaurs because mm -hmm. like the oldest tyrannosaurs we know are like 30 years right. carcharodontosaurs we think got to about twice that age with some regularity well we don't know the exact maximum age of tyrannosaurus either no but based on the same sort of evidence we have it seems like the carcharodontosaurids lived a lot longer what was their secret? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they ate some special thing. It's probably <laughs> just genetics. <laughs> but <laughs> fortunately with Meraxes, we have very complete hind limbs and forelimbs, which is super rare for a Carcharodontosaur or really any large theropod. Mm -hmm. It had very short forelimbs and they tested a comparison to head size. Basically, if you look at things like Abelosaurids and Tyrannosaurs and even a little bit with Alvarosaurs, they all shrink their arms relative to their femur length. As we know, you just look at it and mm -hmm. you're immediately like, that thing has tiny arms. Yep. But if you're going to quantify it, usually what you do is you compare the arm to the leg length. And what they found is that the early diverging members of those groups had similar arm lengths, but over time, the arms changed differently for each section of the limb. So basically, they all shrunk their arms, but they shrunk in different ways. And they did find that as head size increased based on a specific bone that they picked, the interquadrate width, because there are some weird small heads in some of them, and that was a bone that worked pretty well for head size, they found that the arm lengths shorten. They drew a scatter plot of all of the you know, head size to forearm length, and they drew this trend line down. But when I looked at the data, it was not particularly convincing. The error bars must have been really huge because it almost looked like, you know, just a random scatter. And I think you could have drawn a slope with a weak positive, weak negative, or zero slope for correlation. They picked weak negative, which I think was the closest to the data, but it, it's not very consistent. And yeah, we had a, there were a lot of talks about forearm length in tyrannosaurs and other large theropods. And like you were talking about the other day, basically... It was like one group of tyrannosaurs that did it, and they did it really early before right. their heads even got big. So, yeah, I guess it's still up for debate how much the big heads made the arms small. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just one of many things that came out of this Meraxes and will come out of this Meraxes discovery because it filled in such good gaps of having those hind limbs and forelimbs of a really large theropod. There was another talk about Meraxes. This one was by... Damiano Palombi. This one focused on the feet of Meraxes and Carcharodontosaurids. 
So the question is, how did large theropods bear their weight on their two feet? Which I think usually those kinds of questions we talk about with sauropods <laughs> on their forefeet. But. Yeah, that is true. When you think about dinosaurs dealing with a lot of weight, you don't usually think about the large carnivores. But these things weighed like six to ten tons. Mm -hmm. So it's not trivial. And if they're teetering all that on just two feet, that's a lot of mass on an individual foot. Oh, yes. And being recently pregnant and having gained a bunch of weight. As a bipedal animal. As a bipedal, <laughs> yeah. It's... It's a different experience being a little bit on the heavier side. And I was nowhere near as heavy as these carcharodontosaurids. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we in the past talked a little bit about how tyrannosaurs do it because they're arctometatarsalian, which basically means their foot bones sort of smashed together and sort of in so doing became stronger as like a sort of unit with not a lot of breathing room and not a lot of movement between the bones. But carcharodontosaurids, were they a different story? Yeah. Well, Meraxes helps fill in the story a little bit because there's a complete and articulated left foot. Yeah, that's amazing. Yes. And they were looking at it and found that it had a proportionally shorter and more robust foot compared to related but similar dinosaurs like Allosaurus, Sinraptor, Concavenator. They said the proportions are strongly linked to the limits, quote, imposed by the size in the trends toward cursorality or also grab a portal and cursorality means you know, able to run so in other words its foot was getting stockier as it went from cursorial to grab a portal yes. or fast running little thing to big heavy lumbering <laughs> monster i don't know about lumbering because <laughs> then we go back to the how we used to see dinosaurs <laughs> yeah but i mean grab a portal is pretty lumbery yeah <laughs> The foot, yeah, it's pretty robust. There were also these rough patches that they said were referable to ligaments between the toes. Yeah, that's really cool. The, they seem to be more connected to each other mm -hmm. in that way. I think they also talked about a bunch of muscle insertion sites for connection to the tibia, possibly. So there's all sorts of ways that this foot could have been reinforced from the leg and just, you know, overall changing in shape mm -hmm. to deal with all that mass. But... Now, it's sort of like when we found that first feathered dinosaur and it filled in a whole bunch of details about other dinosaurs that were related to it, but we had never found the preservation to know about the feathers. It's sort of similar in this way because we have lots of these larger carcharodontosaurids and we don't have articulated feet. Mm -hmm. But now that we do, we can sort of piece together a lot of these isolated toe bones from different carcharodontosaurids and learn a little bit more about them from the this new sort of Rosetta Stone of... Carcharodontosaur feet. We've opened the floodgates. Mm -hmm. They also had a picture of the logo that had Dracarys written on it in their thank you slide. <laughs> and I was trying to figure it out. I like Googled it. I couldn't find like a Dracarys paleontology thing. So I don't know what that was. Maybe that's just what they named the field expedition where they found Meraxes or something. Maybe. But somebody there is really into Game of Thrones. And that's how it became Meraxes. Yeah. That much is clear. A lot of people are into Game of Thrones. Yeah. So now that we've been talking about Meraxes and Carcharodontosaurids, we got to switch back to Tyrannosaurus because... Well, what's a theropod <laughs> session without Tyrannosaurus? <laughs> it's always like a major feature of these sessions. But we had Thomas Carr, you know, one of the most knowledgeable people about Tyrannosaurs and also one of the most outspoken people against the use of private collections in scientific studies because they're not in a museum. So the data can't necessarily be replicated and the experiments can't be replicated. So... What he was talking about in this case was the paper by Gregory Paul 
about splitting T-Rex into T-Rex, T-Imperator, and T-Regina. And I think we might have already covered his thoughts on this, but if we haven't, he's not a fan of it. (laughs) The quick summary. Right. There was a paper that came out over summer that addressed this, and he was on that paper. Yes. Among many, many other co-authors, also a lot of Tyrannosaur experts. So they all looked at the statistical tests and comparisons and diagnoses, as well as the results that that original paper came to, to see if they could find, you know, whether or not all three of them were valid, if two of them might be valid, but the other one isn't, or just how the statistics played out. So they basically took another approach to the analysis. And I think the way he put it was he didn't like including tyrannosaurs in private collections, but his hands were tied because I think there was an early analysis that he did that left out the private collection tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. But then there was criticism of that where it's like, well, you're not really redoing the science of the earlier paper because you're leaving out a bunch of specimens. So he included them in this analysis. And the first test was the gracile versus robust morphologies. And they used a different statistical analysis rather than putting in that we think there are going to be three groups. He let the analysis using something called fuzzy C and K clusters, which is something new to me, to determine how many clusters the groups should be put into. So if it's just one cluster or if there are multiple. And it ended up finding that there were two clusters, but not three. So it didn't support the full number of Tyrannosaur splitting. And then the other bigger issue is that there were two tests for determining whether something was T-Rex, T-Imperator, or T-Regina. It includes the robust morphology, but also some of the tooth data, like how many tooth positions there were in the front of the mouth, basically. And what they found was that of the specimens they looked at, 23 of them were identified into one of those three groups, but 30 of them were not identified. And as Carr put that, that only adds to species instability because there's a bunch of uncertainty about these individuals. He also pointed out that recent papers estimate that between 70 and 100 individuals are necessary to resolve multiple species by this type of analysis, meaning robusticity, not things like autapomorphies where there's like different specific things on the bones, like this one has a hole here, this one doesn't. That can be as few as one species, one specimen. But in this case, where you're looking at more subtle details, you can determine different species. It's not like the idea of splitting T-Rex into different groups based on robustness is out of the question. You could definitely do it. But part of the problem might be that we just don't have a large enough data set. Mm. So with the data we have now, you can't necessarily back up splitting this into different groups. I think this might be a debate that goes on for a little bit. It could be, yeah. They also pointed out that with the teeth reducing, we don't know the exact sequence of teeth losing and if there's a bunch of plasticity between it. So when you see some teeth missing from the very front of the jaw, we don't know if that's just individual variation or where it is in the progression of tooth loss and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And even though the data showed that there were two groups for the robustness, it only found one group for the dentary thing. There wasn't a statistical difference between the different groups. So Mm. there was one optimum cluster in their statistical terminology. So in summary, the way he put it was, quote, there is currently no evidence to split Tyrannosaurus rex into three species, end quote. Although a lot of people agree that there are some differences between some of them. We just don't know how to split them. I think the key word there is currently. Yeah. 
There's a lot of specimens over a lot of years. So it's likely that there were different species, but we just can't really define it with what we have. According to Thomas Carr. Well, and I think most T-Rex experts because Oh, right, because the co-authors, that's all in the paper, yeah. Yes. And while we're on the T-Rex trade, we might as well talk about the other huge debate <laughs> in Tyrannosaurus, which is Nanotyrannus. So <laughs> oh, yeah. there was a presentation by Brenna Hart Farrar talking about Jane and Petey, often sort of referred to as Nanotyrannus, depending on who you're asking. This isn't the holotype Nanotyrannus, so other people would say, you know, it's not Nanotyrannus by definition, but whatever. That aside, new information about Jane and Petey. So... They sampled and scanned the tibia and femora from Jane and Petey, and what they found was that they were about 13 years old for Jane and 15 years old for Petey. Because tyrannosaurs take about 20 years to reach maturity, that would mean that Jane and Petey are juveniles. Which we've talked about them before and being juveniles. Yes, but what they wanted to do in this paper was sort of expand on that by comparing them to ratites and sort of trying to figure out just exactly where they were in their growth trajectory by looking at really specific details of the bone rather than just looking at the lag count and saying how old they were. Because as we know, some things get to a full size earlier than others. And you can look at these really intricate details of the bone and see how fast they were growing and some details of their life. So what they found was that ratites have a similar bone deposition rate of about 80 micrometers per day, which I think is sort of in the range of like human hair size. <laughs> so basically their bones are growing at like one human hair <laughs> per day, which isn't insignificant. That's a pretty fast growth. I feel like humans don't do that, especially for years and years. But even though they grow at 80 micrometers per day on average, they do have some variability in that, obviously, because that's when you get the lags when things are slowing down. There's also growth plasticity in both ratites and tyrannosaurs, again, causing lags, but also changing the type of bone that you see in addition to just the, the slow growth marks. And to sort of expand on that, they have the 2D histology where you can count the lags, but they also did 3D histology, which is a really cool thing that I've never seen before, and I think it is a pretty new technique. So the 2D results show Pedia's tibia looks similar to about a four and a half month old emu. <laughs> <laughs> and I think emu take on the order of a year or two to grow to full adult size. And in the 3D scan, they could see a lot of vasculature, which also shows that it was a rapidly growing teenager. They can also see resorption cavities that seem to be concentrated around possible medullary bone, which is pretty cool. It's another way maybe we'll be able to see medullary bone in the future by doing something like this 3D comparison of modern birds to dinosaurs. And again, medullary bone is this thing that birds have, which help them lay eggs. Mm -hmm. So things with medullary bone are, are assumed female. to be female. Yeah, It's one of the few ways we could tell if a dinosaur is male or female. Yeah. Although there's always a debate on whether or not something actually is medullary bone or if it's something else. Yes. So in other words... They think that PD was near the end of a reproductive cycle based on this medullary bone. And that would also mean that PD is a female. Mm -hmm. 
I always think it's funny when dinosaurs are named after a person that has like a very clear gendered association with it. And then it turns out to be probably the opposite sex of what the name is. So since Jane is similar in age, they expected it to be similar. Obviously, it's only a couple years away. But Petey actually has more vasculature, possibly because it was getting into a growth spurt. And they compared Jane more to a two-month-old emu, Hmm. which had similar vasculature. But it's more organized than the tyrannosaur or the older emu in Jane. So as a result, because they're not all lining up really neatly with you expect to see this more organized stuff in older ones, but there's more vasculature and then you're getting different (laughs) combinations of features. That basically just means that there's a lot of growth plasticity and that means that there's just a lot of variability in how tyrannosaurs grew, even more so than in ratites, probably because they have about 10 to 20 years to grow for a tyrannosaur to their full size, whereas it's only about a year for an emu. Mm -hmm. And in the future, they want to add in the kiwi and the ostrich so they can compare And this would be especially useful because kiwis have medullary bone that would be a good comparison for Petey. They also answered a question in the Q&A indicating that they scanned the entire bone, or at least they could, and you see the same number of lags in 2D and 3D. Oh, that's good. And that makes me wonder, well, in the future, are we going to not even need to slice open these bones to do histology? Because if you can count the lags by throwing it in a CT scanner mm-hmm. and you get all this extra information about the vasculature and everything. Yeah. Then you can learn more because certain fossils are, nope, we're not doing histology on that because it's too rare. <laughs> exactly. Or it would be too difficult because it's like partly in a slab or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty hopeful for the future. Yeah. The cool thing about these theropod talks is that you get things like therizinosaurs, which are very different from the other theropods we tend to talk about. Yes, we love therizinosaurs. Yes, mainly because all of their relatives are known for their meat-eating habits, and these ones ate plants. (laughs) Despite having larger claws than all of their relatives. Yeah. (laughs) So David Smith gave a talk. And this was about the Therizinosaur Nothronychus. Maybe the best known, at least from their fossils, or one of the best known. Yeah. From like a nice complete Therizinosaur fossil. And because you can get a lot of information studying and comparing the fossils of dinosaurs to modern birds, just like Garrett, you were saying with the ostrich and the kiwi, well, for future studies, but also the emu. Mm -hmm. For the medullary bone and everything. Yeah. In this case, they compared it to a quail. Cool. Yeah, and they were looking at the Nothronychus shortened tail. There's some traits that are associated with birds that evolved multiple times, and that includes this reduced, this shorter tail, and also this pneumaticity, the holes in the vertebrae that lighten the skeleton. They found that Nothronychus was not cursorial, there's that word again, so it wasn't really a runner, but its femur moved through about a seven-degree arc while it was walking. It's a function of speed. Yeah, that's not a lot of movement. (laughs) Yeah. What's interesting is based on that, they think that there's a lot of trackways that are attributed to Nothronychus, these dinosaur footprints that might have been something else because they have this much narrower gauge compared to what Nothronychus would have had. Yeah. I think it also has to do with the stance, like how far apart its feet were Mm -hmm. compared to what we think now. Exactly. So just another example of you find a new 
piece of information and then that sheds light on a whole bunch of other things. And then you got to kind of rethink what that means. Yeah, for sure. And to the point you were making about the tail being similar to a quail in some ways, I think that had to do with they saw how Nothronychus maybe had knee-propelled locomotion rather than hip-propelled locomotion in something like Falcarius, mm. which is a, a similar Therizinosaur. Mm -hmm. And part of the way they figured that out was using something called Wolf's Law, which I don't think I'd seen before. Wolf's Law, I guess, is that stress increases osteoblast activity. So in other words, if there's a part of the bone that's under a lot of stress, you can actually see it in a fossil because there'll be more osteocytes in that spot. And they found a lot of this activity basically in the spots on the bones where you'd expect to see it if it had big leg muscles that were lifting the knee rather than something more like using the tail to help or the hips mm -hmm. to swing the legs. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's always surprising that even within a family like Therizinosaurs, there can be a big difference. Yeah. Like how they walked on a musculoskeletal level. Exactly. It's a good reminder of how long they were around and how diverse the dinosaurs were. So now we got some more Tyrannosaur talks. Because <laughs> it's just... It's it, what you do. It happens. So this one was a Jordan Mallon presentation. And I would describe it as fun with normal distributions. <laughs> All right. Also known as bell curves. So basically, the point of this talk was that when people are estimating or arguing about which dinosaur is bigger than another dinosaur, it's a very difficult thing to do. Not just because we have only one individual of many species, but also because we're unlikely to find the largest individual in the fossil record or really just any sort of consistency between groups because there's a lot of variability within individuals of a lot of species. So they use some similar animals like reptiles to figure out growth curves of different animals and then use that as a basis for comparing T-Rex size and how big they would have been at different ages and population overall. In order to study it, they had to use computer analyses in order to figure this out. And so they used the lower population size of that study we talked about a while back, where they said there were roughly between 140 million and 2.5 billion tyrannosaurs that ever lived mm -hmm. so they used 140 million just because the computer could handle it <laughs> <laughs> yep and first of all they tried it two different ways with and without sexual dimorphism of something like an alligator because you get one larger group and one smaller group and what they found is that the best fit growth model was more consistent with no sexual dimorphism so there isn't a strong difference between different groups of tyrannosaurs in terms of like there's a large group and a small group. But that wasn't really the point of this anyway, because they were looking farther down the curve. What they said was that they estimate we've probably got a Tyrannosaur near the 99th percentile for how large T-Rex got. And I think that's probably because we have about 100 Tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. So if you have 100 of them, one of them's probably in the 99th percentile. And that basically means that it was around two and a half standard deviations, if you're into that kind of thing. However, if there was strong sexual dimorphism, like in the alligator, we should be finding some individuals that were around 12,000 kilograms, which doesn't seem to be the case. So mm -hmm. again, probably doesn't have this strong dimorphism. But even with having regular distribution without the dimorphism, 
if the largest T-Rex we have is about 8,800 kilograms and it's at that two and a half standard deviation size, the biggest individual possible might be about 15,000 kilograms, mm -hmm. which is basically like if you take the end of that bell curve, which only contains one out of every somewhere in the 140 million to two and a half billion individuals, which is roughly six sigma. And so, yeah, it's like one in a billion size yep. would be about 15,000 kilograms, 15 tons. They're saying, and if it is that big, its femur would be similar to a sauropods. <laughs> and in terms of like, what does that mean? Could Tyrannosaurus have taken out sauropods? Like some of these really huge ones? Yeah. Like how we see orcas sometimes take out blue whales, which I didn't realize that was happening. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it is possible that at least very few of the very largest Tyrannosaurus could have hunted a sauropod. But I think in general, it's sort of just a fun little thing to look at, like how big could a T-Rex have gotten? They did mention, you know, it's best not to generalize about a species body size based on just a few individuals. Yeah, but you kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we only have a few individuals of most species. Yeah. They did say the largest T-Rex were probably 30 to 70% more massive than the current largest known individual, which is Scotty. Yeah. So that's that 15,000 kilogram mark. Mm -hmm. And that is one of those things where it's like, even though if we have the 99th percentile for largest, if you think about like human height, the 99th percentile for a man's height might be like six foot one or six foot two or something. But that last 1% goes all the way up to like seven foot eight or something. Mm -hmm. there, there can be a whole lot out there in those fringes in terms of size. So yeah, that was probably the case with dinosaurs too. And we probably won't ever know exactly how big they got, but the more dinosaurs we find, the better we can fill in these sort of standard deviations and get estimates about the extremes. Mm -hmm. A close relative of Tyrannosaurus is Tarbosaurus. So there was a talk about Tarbosaurus. This is by Justina Slowiak Morkovina. And for this study, there were a few parts to it because, first of all, the Tarbosaurus fossils were moved around a lot. Yeah, so basically they found these Tarbosaurus fossils about 50, 60 years ago. It was all in the Polish-Mongolian exhibitions in the 60s and 70s, which I presume might be some of the expeditions that Steve Brusati was talking about. Oh, yeah, could be. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. But during those expeditions, they brought a lot of specimens back to Poland, a lot of Tarbosaurus included in that. And they think they have about 20 individuals, which is crazy mm -hmm. when you think about how much interest there is in Tyrannosaurus, that they might have 20 <laughs> individuals of Tarbosaurus. Yeah. It's a huge number. You can learn a lot. Yes. But unfortunately, they don't have a natural history museum in Poland. So the bones have been stored in lots of different places and they've been moved around to all these different places over time and they've gotten pretty disorganized. So their first step was identifying them. And then after they identified them, they often had to repair them because many of them broke over these years. So they had to be glued back together, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they could be surface scanned and modeled and reconstructed and really start the work of studying them. Yes. So that was part one. And then what the talk was mainly about, I think the title sums it up nicely, is bite marks on the heads, traumas on the legs. So <laughs> <Yeah>. pathologies. <laughs> yeah. 
They looked at the scars on the heads. There were some teeth problems. There were these bony overgrowths in the ribs, which they thought that meant there was a fracture, but CT scans showed they were not fractures. In the feet, there were also some overgrowths and some bony lumps, which is common in larger tyrannosaurs. They think the bony lumps were likely some kind of response to high stress. Yes, again, the bipedal heavy dinosaurs trying to walk around. Mm-hmm. One of the individuals, going back to the teeth, there was an inflammation of the gums, which they think might be periodontis. Yeah, that's a thing where there's missing bone in the jaw, and that can happen basically in humans. We get that sometimes if we don't take good care of our teeth. Mm-hmm. There was also a skeleton with osteosarcoma. There's no signs of fracture and no pockmarking, so they know it wasn't osteomyelitis. And there was a lesion that showed that it wasn't osteochondroma, but they do want to do some more CT scans and histology just to confirm that it is osteosarcoma. In other words, like bone cancer. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, they didn't find pathologies in the forelimb bones, but there were 25 bones. They said the sample's not that big. They also didn't find any in the vertebrae, and they had 163 of those. <laughs> yeah. But it's possible that there were some issues with them. They were mostly looking, though, at the feet and the face. Yeah. And most of the large size individuals had scars on their snouts. The bite marks on the skulls were consistent with what you see in other tyrannosaurids. The large size specimens, they have some lesions on the snouts, but the medium and small ones don't. From biting each other on the faces. Yes. And even the pathologies in the rest of the skeleton, you, you mostly see them in the large individuals here. So they do need to do more CT scans, they said, because there's just not enough information yet to know for sure about specific pathologies, just that there's a lot. Yeah, there was a question in the Q&A, too, about if there were bite marks on other things other than the face, but they said they didn't really check the other places because they were mostly just checking to see did Tarbosaurus bite each other on the faces, just like Tyrannosaurus seemed to, or Tyrannosaurus seemed to. And the answer is yes. They bit each other on the face. But I'm really excited about all these. We, I haven't heard anything about the huge collection of Polish Tarbosaurus mm-hmm. specimens before, which... Man, there's just so much you can learn from those specimens, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It's nice that they didn't go missing either onto the black market in all those years of like shuffling around to different museums and, and like not a lot of data on what it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was the the saving grace. People didn't realize that they were there. Oh, maybe. And speaking of Tyrannosaur teeth, which I think was split carinae, we might have missed that. That's where the row of serration sort of forks. And we don't really know why it happens, but it might be a genetic thing on the teeth. Mm. So Becky Wu was also looking at teeth and sort of trying to figure out how teeth were replaced in dinosaurs based on some modern animals. So specifically looking at things like Coelophysis and Troodontid. And to summarize it, what they found was that the Troodontid tooth cycle is sort of in between what we see in birds and early non-avian theropods. And when I say birds, I'm talking about something like Ichthyornis that actually has teeth. Mm. (laughs) Not modern birds. Fossil birds. Yes, fossilized birds. So in alligators, what you get is the tooth, the replacement tooth comes in from the tongue side, also known as the lingual side in tooth land. (laughs) Talk about (laughs) lingual is the tongue side, labial is the cheek side. Mm -hmm. Whereas on Ichthyornis, 
even though it also comes in from the tongue side, it sort of comes in more from the actual side rather than near the root. And it also leaves the root near the cheek. Like the, if you imagine there's a root near the cheek and a root near the tongue, the one by the cheek stays there for a really long time. And it seems like the dinosaur root also sticks around for a really long time. So it's sort of an interesting trait that they have in common. Hmm. And that obviously leads to the question, why does it have that root sticking around for such a long time? And their best guess is that it might have to do with the amount of force that the tooth needs to handle. So in other words, it can handle a stronger bite force while it's being replaced, the mm-hmm. tooth can. Whereas if you think about, you know, like our tooth, for example, there's that point where it can no longer really hold up to much force and you bite into something and the tooth pops right out, but you don't really have the replacement tooth all that ready yet. Right. It takes a little while for it to like fully replace it. In this case, maybe they had a little bit more replacement tooth available by the time the other tooth is falling out which is pretty neat it is and probably important if you're replacing your teeth constantly yeah definitely and in just a moment we'll get on to our interview where we learn all about a brand new tyrannosaur but first we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break this episode is brought to you by the colorado northwestern community college where you can become a part of the scientific process As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Elias and Denver. But as always, we talked a lot about all sorts of different paleontological neatness. (laughs) So if you want to hear that stuff, make sure to check out the extended version in your premium content feed if you're a patron. 
We are joined this week by Elias Warshaw, a research associate at Badlands Dinosaur Museum and a student at Montana State University, and Denver Fowler, who's the curator at the Badlands Dinosaur Museum. And we're talking to them today because they have a really cool new Tyrannosaur discovery. Thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. We're really excited to talk about it. Yeah, thanks very much. Awesome. Could you tell us like a little bit about the specimen? You know, how was it found? What's been found? So the specimen was found, uh, the site was found in 2017. One of my field crew called uh, Jack Wilson, who's found all sorts of things for our crews over the years. We were prospecting in an area in northern Montana, and we'd actually had a really good time there for tyrannosaurs. This is one of four tyrannosaurs that we've collected, uh, partial skeletons of tyrannosaurs that we've collected in that area. And you've probably seen a little bit of coverage about um, the one that we had helicoptered. I had found that one. And Jack, being uh, competitive, really wanted to find one for himself. <laughs> so he was he was off wandering, looking, prospecting, looking for, for more. And he found another two that were quite close to the one that I found. But this was on the other side of the coulee. And we saw this great big cliff. And there were some bits of bone scattered around the bottom of the cliff that was part of a dorsal vertebra. And then sticking out of the cliff was this little bit of bone and it had a very flat surface on it. And Jack said, well, I know what that is. It's like, yeah, it's the premaxilla of a tyrannosaur. You can oh, wow. see wow. it very clearly. So we dug in to that little, that little bone, and we found a beautiful premax. And we had a little look around the site, and there were some more bits of bone sticking out the same layer. But at the time, in 2017, you know, we'd only just found all of the sites. It was our first year in that area. So... We thought, well, we're going to get these tyrannosaurs out one by one. And uh, we started off with the articulated one uh, that we helicoptered out last year. Mm-hmm. And then 2020 and 2021, and then a little bit of this year, we excavated at what Jack called the Jack's B2. It was named B2 um, after B-Rex, the famous Museum of the Rockies tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. And it was called that because it had a huge cliff above it. The excavations we did to get this thing out, uh, we dug away about 25 feet or more of uh, solid rock to get down wow. to the bones. <laughs> a lot of work involved. So that's why I didn't prioritize this one. It, it looked like it would be nice, possibly, but uh, it was so much work. I wanted to do the articulated one. Mm-hmm. So we got that. Those years, um, I think 2021 and 2022, Elias was, was on the crew. And did an enormous amount of uh, of the overburden with jackhammers, etc. And so he didn't get to see any bone at the site, I don't think, because he was doing overburden most of the time. So I invited him to. He was talking about tyrannosaurs and, and evidently had uh, was really clued up rather more than I am about them. So I invited him to to work on describing the specimen. Nice. So was all twenty five feet of that overburden removed just with jackhammers? Yeah, jackhammers and um, a lot of energy drinks and um, <laughs> lots of shoveling. It was, it's an enormous hole, it really is. We got most of the bones out from near the front of the cliff. Um, as we dug in further, we didn't actually find much more. But, you know, you've got to clear these sites out properly. So I'm pretty satisfied that we've cleared it out and there's nothing else there, or at least in the main area where we were. It's very, very scattered, that specimen. It, it was preserved on a riverbank. So... Although it's beautifully preserved, the bones are fantastic. They were really mixed up. There wasn't like 
of a skull articulated or anything mm. like that. Um, although some of the skull bones mm. were together, they were all the way down the bank going into the channel. So they were very spread out and scattered. Wow. Was that, I don't remember if, has that been described yet? The specimen? Mm-hmm. Uh, the one, well, this is what Elias is describing right now is this disarticulated, very large dyslutosaur. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, were you thinking of the first one? Gary? I was thinking of the helicopter articulated one. Yeah, that one's not being described. I mean, we're still cleaning that one up. We're about to start this coming week, actually. It should have happened the last few weeks, but we've, we've just set up our um, time-lapse GoPro above the main concretion. We got the tail cleaned up, so that's been um, my preparator, Steve Clawson, has been learning how this really hard concretion acts <laughs> uh, with the different tools he's got. So he's got most of the tail clean, and we've got a new GoPro st- uh, mounted it above the main block, and that's going to be filmed over the next two to three years. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Is there? Have you come up with a way to like share the GoPro footage yet, or is that a, a future project to figure out what to do with it? It will auto-stream. I mean you're better off sort of managing the time lapse because it takes a photograph every minute, but it's, it's a big slab. And so every, you know, one minute's worth of work isn't going to look like much. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll edit, edit things down and periodically release time lapses and things like that. Awesome. Oh, cool. I love time lapses. We'll and keep an eye out for those. Yeah. That's so cool. All right. So the specimen, well, the new species that we're talking about today, that's a, I mean, that's a big deal. So it's uh we, we named it, Despletosaurus wilsoni, uh, and that's after Jack Wilson, who found the site and, and a bunch of other sites in the in the area. And so, the cool thing about it is that, based on where we are stratigraphically, it sort of lies like right in between uh, the two other species of Despletosaurus that have previously been named. Mm-hmm. So the two other ones are Despletosaurus terosus, which was named back in 1970, uh, and that's from the Old Man Formation, so about 77 million years old. And then we're in the Judith River Formation at around 76 and a half million. And then the other species of Despedosaurus, of course, was named in 2017, and that's Despedosaurus horneri. And so it was immediately interesting, I think, that we were in an area where those species haven't been found previously, but it was sort of in that bracket where we would be expecting to find Despedosaurus. Mm-hmm. Cool. I mean, that's... Not something you hear about too much is uh, being able to directly show this evolution. Yeah. So when did you start to think this might be an in-between species and not just a, you know, one of the two existing taxon? Well, the the first time that I saw the bones actually was in the field. I didn't see the, the bones themselves, but I saw pictures as we were going to go work on the site. And it like just immediately looked weird. Because, uh, you know, the, the first thing they said, this is Despletosaurus. We, we excavated this last year. And I was trying to figure like, okay, well, we're closer in time to Terosis. So it should be a, a Despletosaurus Terosis. But then there were just a lot of, a lot of little features that seem more similar to Horneri. Mm. And so that, that, that immediately was like, okay, well, this, is, this makes sense given the idea that, that one is evolving into the other. This is exactly what we would expect to see. And so that, that was the initial sort of clue in uh, that that might be what's going on. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. You see an amalgamation of features in between time and all that. Did you, I don't know, did you say about what age Horneri is? Right. uh, Horneri is uh, around 75, a little more than 75 million years old. Um, That's the two medicine formations a little further west in Montana. Gotcha. So that's like one, one and a half million years after this new 
dinosaur? Yeah, about a million years ish. Oh, no. okay. um, so yeah, it, we're definitely closer in time to Taurosis in terms of where the new specimen is from. Gotcha. Yeah, I think Thanatotheristes is seventy-eight million, and then Displetosaurus Taurosis is about seventy-seven million, and then Horneri is about seventy-five and a half million, hmm. and we're sitting something like seventy-six and a half million, something like that. Yeah, wow, that's a pretty good series. Right in between, yeah. <laughs> And those are all pretty new, other than Taurosis. That one's not so new in terms of human time. <laughs> right, yeah. And and Taurosis, I'm not sure if you remember when Thanatotheristes was named. It was sort of advertised as the first Tyrannosaur named from Canada in 50 years. And the last one was Taurosis. So um, <laughs> these uh, sort of Despletosaurus line Tyrannosaurus have been coming out pretty consistently. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about what parts of the individual have been found? Yeah, so we have uh, a good bit of the skull. We have most elements are preserved either on one side or the other. So mm. we have both premaxillae mm. um, is the only the only bone that we have both sides of. And then a left maxilla, a right jugal, a left lacrimal, a left postorbital, left squamosal, right quadrate jugal, right quadrate, a right denary, and a right splenial. So lot, lots of sort of scattered across uh, different bits of the skull, but it was lucky that a lot of those bones, like especially the lacrimal and the postorbital, are are very diagnostic. So um, the bits that were preserved was very fortunate what we got. So it's easy to tell this is a new species. Right. Or definitely e- easy as soon as it came out of the ground to oh, say, sure. um, to find sort of like the general area of the family tree that it was fitting into. And then working from there, finding, you know, which one is it closer to, horneri or terosis, uh, what features are changing here. That was the majority of the work. But it was definitely clear what it was from early on. Yeah, the um, one of the first skull bones, other than the premax that we came across, was the lacrimal. But it had been exposed, so we were seeing this bone smeared across the surface of this sandstone. It was all powder. So we gave it a lot of glue. It was solid. We just, I didn't know what it was. And uh, we chiseled around it and lifted it out of the sandstone. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, the thing flips over and it's like, that's a lacrimal. That's, that's one of the best bones you can find. Like already it was like Excitement City. And then uh, as we spread out from around that one spot, all of a sudden all these other skull bones pop up. But it's not, it's not just the skull. We do have some postcranial, not very much. We have a rib, a couple of ribs some tail vertebrae, the sacrum, parts of a dorsal. Um, what else we got? Oh, four cervicals. And we mm. have one metatarsal one, I think. Mm. I think that's just about it, though. Also, oh, a chevron, and a chevron as well. When you're doing displetosaurus, is it like the skull is where all the features are, or do you get anything useful out of the... The postcranial? A foot bone or a, a vertebra? Not foot bones that I know of. Um, the cervical vertebrae can be useful. And so it was good that we got those. But yeah, generally, in, in tyrannosaurs generally, and I'm sure this is the case in, in a lot of dinosaur groups and maybe a lot of vertebrate groups generally, but the, the skull is definitely the, the part that you're looking for. That That's where most of the information is going to be. Gotcha. And I, I know you. I noticed you didn't list any of the really great long bones in terms of estimating weight or potentially age and things like that, but do you have any idea roughly about how old it was? Yeah, it, it seems like it, it should be pretty old. So we haven't done any histology on it. Uh, we do have a, a rib head that potentially can be cut into hmm. in terms of uh, finding like a, a, a lag count and actual chronological age for the specimen. 
but it is one of the biggest Despedosaurus specimens ever found. The reconstructed skull is about 105 centimeters, a little more than a meter. Hmm. Uh, the, for reference, the Despedosaurus terosus holotype is just one centimeter shorter, 104. And so that already sort of says, well, this is probably a, a relatively old animal if it's if it's this huge. But mm-hmm. uh, other features like the sort of the scalloping on the uh, contact between the maxilla and where the nasal would have gone is really, really deeply developed. And so there's just a, lo- a lot of features that suggest that this animal was, was probably pretty old. Which nice. I'm, I'm sure that helps too with knowing it's a new species and oh, yeah. being able to figure out, yes, these features are unique. You can get out of the right. hole. Is it a juvenile? Is it a new species? <laughs> Rigmarole. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I'm looking at the images now, and especially the images that show the teeth. That's so detailed. It's really cool to look at. Oh, yeah. Were the, were the teeth mostly found in the maxilla, or did they have to get like glued back in after the fact? They were all found like that. Yeah, we haven't inserted any teeth. There is a one pre-max tooth in a premaxilla, and there's another premax tooth that was loose, and then there's another single tooth that doesn't have a root uh, that was found near the maxilla. But otherwise, the the bones in the fi- in the figures are are as found. Basically. Wow, yeah, because there's just a yeah, and the dentary too is just full of it's got like almost a dozen teeth there. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. Uh, especially, I, I like the the sort of banding on the teeth. The the colors are just beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of like black and brown alternating a little bit of orange in there yeah yeah Yeah, it's really pretty so was the i know you said the premax was what was sticking out of the cliff sort of like the the tip of the jaw was that pretty okay shape or was it like some erosion yeah Uh, you can actually see in the in the figure the premax lay the bit that was exposed and and sun bleached that's in the in the left premaxilla that nasal process there mm. you can see it's much lighter than the rest of the bone oh, oh yes yeah. <laughs> yeah we we glued part of the the nasal process back on um it had broken off and fallen down about uh, 10 feet this thing was <laughs> like it wasn't like a i well it was just above eye level to get it out of the cliff so we rooted about, we made sure that we uh, checked underneath where that premax was coming out, to make sure we could find the pieces. We actually managed to find two loose pieces that glued all on nicely. So wow. it's actually a really good shape. The bone is very robust, and very strong and well-preserved. And most of the skull bones were in a really soft sandstone um, that, that disaggregates really easily with water. Oh, so wonderful. the surfaces are really pristine. You can see beautiful details of um, blood vessels and nerves and stuff like that. Um, which will maybe be something that people are interested in looking at in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because it wasn't, wasn't it a Displetosaurus that they used that it made all those clickbaity headlines like oh, the Tyrannosaurus facial... was a sensitive lover or mm-hmm. whatever they were saying with like they're rubbing their faces on each other? <laughs> yeah, that, that, was the, uh, that was the description of Displetosaurus horneri. Yes. So Displetosaurus um, specifically among Tyrannosaurus has a, a very textured maxilla and denary just sort of the the entire front of the face you can really see lots of grooves for nerves and blood vessels and things like that so that's that's where that idea comes from yeah i love that i i love yeah. anything that makes the predatory dinosaurs feel a little bit more like parents or you know like more than just like a killing machine which is how most people <laughs> think of these dinosaurs yeah for sure the maxilla also has um, an abscessed tooth of the one of the posterior teeth when I, was, when I was prepping it, 
I cleaned most of the mags, I think, of the denery. It, it wasn't clear because it's very, very similar to the sandstone that it's in. I was sort of brushing around it and it was a bit harder, but sometimes you get little concretions inside those tooth sockets. So I was cleaning it away and then a little piece of it broke off. I was able to glue it back. But it's very clearly bone. I looked at it under the microscope. So it has one of the tooth sockets is full of this kind of fibrous um, <laughs> pathological bone. Uh, it, had a, it had a tooth abscess in one of its upper jaws. Mm. It does have a number of other pathologies as well, which I'm sure Elias could tell you about. Oh, yes, please do. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah just uh, you know, lots of random little things scattered across the skull. Like on the, on the denary, um, towards the back of the denary, there are a couple of these shallow beveled grooves that uh, compare well with uh, what has in other papers been proposed to be you know, craniofacial biting marks from other tyrannosaurs hmm. and then in the in the premaxilla as well there's a small indentation in one of them that uh could be pathological it's very odd looking we're not really sure what it is but yeah l- lots of little things like that scattered across the skull yeah there, there seem to be a lot of face biting happening with tyrannosaurs <laughs> <laughs> right I remember we met, we mentioned this one time on the podcast and we got some responses from people saying that their dogs bite each other on the face. And one of them even had a hole go through the jaw of like their dog has a hole in its jaw, like the actual jaw bone mm-hmm. <laughs> permanently from getting bit by another dog. So maybe it's not as unusual as I used to think it was, but still sounds horrible. Well, especially if in the Spletosaurus's case, they are... They have the sensitive snouts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bite on a, an extra sensitive face. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, our, our specimen definitely doesn't have it as, as bad as some other ones. Uh, but, you know, it was part of that facial biting club, for yeah. sure. If it's bad enough to leave a mark on the bone, that's that's right. a serious yeah. bite. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, who, who knows how many scars were left just in the, in the overlying skin. Oh, so, yeah. 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 So do you have plans to go back to the site and see if there's any more specimens for this species? <laughs> um, well, we went back to the site this year and really cleared out what was there. And, and by cleared out, I mean, we sat there and first of all, mucked out all the mud that had built up in the site. That took a day or two. And then oh, we spent wow. another week or two just digging digging through that bone layer again, just making sure it's clear. So um, if I never go back to the site ever again, I'll be very happy. Um, and I'm sure Elias will be too. But we, we are going back to another site nearby, another site that Jack found called Jack's Tirano. It's our last one of the four to collect. Um, we were back there this year a little bit, and um, Elias dug there. I, I was working on another site. But we'll be there. we'll be there for at least a couple of weeks again this year. Nice. Going back to, we kind of talked about how large this Displetosaurus wilsoni individual is, but is it the largest known Displetosaurus individual? It's definitely one of the largest. It is not the largest. There is the Terrell Museum has a Displetosaurus skull, uh, which seems like it's just slightly bigger. That's the the one that they have on on display as their exploded Displetosaurus mount. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that one is just about the same size. Uh, I think it's reported uh, previously as 106 centimeters so it just sort of just barely beats oh, us yeah, out that's um, very close that, right that, and that that one is the the largest dispedosaurus that i'm aware of cool nice well it, it's good when they're all similar in size because then you can be pretty confident that they were probably roughly the same age and then make some good comparisons right yeah it it, it definitely helped comparing things like the the sizes of different horns uh, to not have to 
you know, scale everything and uh, to compare them uh, sort of just on a first glance, you could really line them up and, and see what was going on. Nice. Yeah. So any future plans for this specimen? Yeah, that rib head is, uh, people don't often do histology on ribs because in the past people have done them on the, the main part of the rib, which doesn't give you the full growth record. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sauropod researchers have been using rib heads where it doesn't remodel as much. So we've got, I think, at least one rib head. It just got cleaned up the other day and it looks really nice. And so my wife, uh, Dr. Liz Friedman Fowler, she's setting up her histology lab here at the university. So she'll actually be able to do the histology on that. And, uh, and Elias will be able to describe all of the, the vertebrae. The sacrum is nearly done and uh, the postcranial description stuff. Um, so that should be pretty good. That would be a nice follow-up to get an age on this thing you know, if the rib gives us that data. Yeah. Awesome. So the, the rib head, I assume, is the part that connects to the vertebra? Yes. So if you do the, like, the main body of the rib, obviously as the animal gets bigger, the rib has to get bigger too. And mm-hmm. because it's so very curved... It, it completely changes shape. So in the past, there's been a number of studies where they've looked at uh, that central part of the rib, and it doesn't record the the lags properly. Um, so it, that's not reliable data. But the head of the rib that actually articulates to the to the vertebra, it doesn't change shape as much. Hmm. So it records more of the growth record. It's still it's still not done very much simply because the leg bones are more reliable. We think. But sauropod workers don't have a lot of choice because their leg bones <laughs> remodel so much, they lose all their legs very rapidly. So mm-hmm. I think Martin Sander and his crew, I think it was them, developed this technique where you cut through the rib head. So we'll do that. You know, People aren't too worried if you cut through ribs. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything else you're working on, Denver, that is exciting and upcoming you want to share? Well, we have our field report coming up on the 1st of December, and we have a number of things I'm going to be debuting. They're going to get their debut. So, um, you know, we've got some theropod stuff, pterosaur stuff, and other things, some new bones from those specimens. So there'll be that. Awesome. I, I, I don't have a bunch of things going. Is that, um, where do you release that report? We live stream it on Facebook, and then it will be on uh, YouTube. Uh, I mean, they're, all the old ones are streamable, you know, they're, they're, they're recorded uh, on the city's TV channel. So they'll be streamable on YouTube. Awesome. Have to check that out. Definitely. I, I don't know if it's of interest. I mean, I well, it is of interest. <laughs> I think it's pretty interesting. I thought um, some of what the new specimen shows and what Elias has been talking about at our most recent meeting is, um, I think, a sort of deeper dive into the different modes of evolution and this being supportive of uh, more anagenesis. I thought that might be something that Elias might want to talk about because oh, yes. I think it's a, it's a big thing from this. Yeah. As another example. Yeah. Well, so uh, we, we sort of talk about it representing an intermediate uh, between Despedosaurus terosus and, and Horneri. And of course, when Despedosaurus Horneri was named in 2017, it was proposed that it represented an anagenetic ancestor from terosus, right? And so anagenesis um, in that context is evolution within a lineage uh, or evolution without branching uh, generally is how it's defined. And so our uh, having an, an intermediate uh, between those two uh, fulfilled the predictions made by that model in that, of course, if there's a lineage existing between Terosis and Horneri, we should expect to sample, you know, individuals belonging there. But Despedosaurus specifically has been sort of a center of debate uh, on evolution in dinosaurs since the 90s, back when it was originally proposed that there was anagenesis happening between 
Dyspedosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. Hmm. And so the distinction being made there, uh, anagenesis versus cladogenesis is, is uh, the branching of a lineage. And so punctuated equilibrium is sort of one of the major um, evolutionary models that is in play nowadays. Uh, and under that model, um, the idea is that the majority of evolution happens at the point of speciation. Mm-hmm. And then species remain relatively static for the rest of their duration. And so in the 90s, when people were, you know, starting, especially the Museum of the Rockies was starting to, to pull up these Despletosaurus specimens, what they noticed was that as you move up higher in section, and so as you're getting closer to present, you see a continuous addition of, of derived character states. So these new morphologies are appearing pretty consistently as you move up through the rocks. And so there, there wasn't really any evidence for stasis in any of these any of these animals. Um, there aren't prolonged periods where you don't see any evolutionary change. Hmm. And so then the question became, well, it, it doesn't seem like it's concentrated at a point of speciation. Uh, we also don't have any overlap between any of the Dyspetosaurus species that have been named so far. And so one of the things that we're proposing here is that we really don't need to use punctuated equilibrium to explain any of the evolutionary change that we're seeing in these dinosaurs. And in fact, a lot of the things that we are observing are, are more consistent with anagenesis in that there's not really any speciation happening at all that we can see, at least that we've sampled so far. Of course, we can't rule out the possibility that there are sort of peripheral branches have gone off and speciated somewhere else. But in terms of what produced the specimens that we have and the species that we recognize currently, it seems like they align pretty well in a, in a single evolving lineage with no evidence for stasis for any prolonged period of time and no reason to suspect that change was sort of centered around a, a point of branching. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable because I, I remember years, decades ago when people were talking about hominid evolution, that was always the question, you know, like, is this one of our ancestors or is it more of like a distant cousin sort of thing? And that's such a, a tricky thing to demonstrate. But yeah, it's really cool that you guys have found those kind of clues in a dinosaur. And I, I think some of the best evidence that we have um, for Wilson and I specifically being a not a, a cousin, but an ancestor and a descendant, is that there's only one feature in the specimen that isn't present in either Tyrosis or Horneri. And that uh, has to do with the shape of a foramen in the splenial. Um, but otherwise, every, every characteristic in which Wilson and I varies from Tyrosis, it shares with Horneri <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it, it's almost a perfect halfway point. Wow, that's really cool. That is. For our listeners, there's a really good figure in the paper that shows all three and kind of the chronological order and explains the differences and images. Yeah, thanks. So we we wanted to sort of show graphically what we thought was going on and sort of chart some of the relevant changes. So a lot lot of the features that are changing are having to do with the uh, ornamentation. And that's similar to, if you know, you know anything about uh, of course, Denver's work on uh, ceratopsians. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like these display features are are under the strongest or at least the most consistent selective pressures. I guess we should ask that. You mentioned little, I think, hornlets on this Displetosaurus. Is is there a difference between it and the other two species? It does have a lower lacrimal horn. Uh, that's the one uh, right in front of the eye. It is lower than in Tyrosis, but it's taller than in Horneri. Hmm. Uh, which is interesting. And then the the post-orbital horn, uh, post-orbital horn, uh, of course, you know, behind the orbit, right behind the eye. That one, it's very, very large, uh, which is very similar to Tyrosis, um, but it is kind of weird. 
there are sort of two processes that make up the whole horn. And enterosis, these are sort of clumped together, um, almost looks like a fist right behind the eye. Uh, in Wilson eye, they've sort of spread apart. And so it uh, almost looks like a, a kidney bean. Hmm. And by the time you get to horner eye, they're gone. There's no subdivision of the corneal process and it's, it's much reduced in size. So hopefully if we can find uh, specimens sort of intermediate in age between Wilson eye and, and horner eye, we'll be able to get a better, a better look at how, uh, how that, that horn is changing. Yeah. Uh, and how fast that happened. Cool. So it had, a, it sounds like it had almost like three horns on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the things I find most interesting about, about this is it's just, it's just, it's another example of, um, and I think where, where the debate is going to go in the next 10 to 15 years is people are going to point to this and say, well, it's just terosis or it's just horneri and how you can actually track changes in a population through time is going to be the next great one of the next great challenges for our taxonomy because what we expect to see is not every individual in the population to look the same but for there to be a basically a bell curve the the average morphology in the middle um, will be moving as well will be changing through time but if you looked at the overall distribution of characters within the population you know the, the the biggest and the smallest might be the same but you might see the average moving between them mm-hmm. and so how we can track that kind of population level change is going to be a real challenge. And in Tyrannosaurs, the, the sample sizes are quite low, uh, perhaps not for Tyrannosaurus rex. I mean, this is the problem with <laughs> us looking at whether or not there are different types of Tyrannosaurus rex through the Hell Creek. You need stratigraphic data and you need a big sample of lots of morphology. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think this is really interesting mm-hmm. because it's starting to feed into that and it'll it'll prompt this debate about how you can actually... Uh, look at populational change and what you expect to see through these different modes of evolution. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I think when I first learned about anagenesis and I was reading about sort of the prototypical example, I think it might have been ammonites or like nautiloids or something. And they're basically showing like over time they were opening up more or something like that. And they're like, where do you draw the line between one that's, you know, a spiral and one that's like nearly straight? You know, do you split it into one and two species or do you split it into like 10 species at every little bit more open than a previous one. So yeah, that, that does seem like a really difficult line to meet in the splitting versus lumping of how many features make it a new species. I'm glad I don't have to decide. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> for our listeners then, for both of you, where's the best place to find out more about you and your work online? Sure. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, so my, my handle is, is just first name, last name. So that's E-L-I-A-S Warshaw, W-A-R-S-H-A-W. Suppose I'm on Twitter and uh, Facebook. I post Facebook and Twitter content for the museum. So there's my personal Facebook account, of course, but the museum's Facebook account, uh, Dickinson Museum Center, uh, and then Denver Fowler or DF9465 on Twitter. I usually post the same sorts of things to both, but not always. But that's how to how to find more stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming on and sharing this awesome new discovery with us. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for the fantastic interview. It is amazing to hear that we might now have the sort of direct ancestor lineage of Displeasaurus. Yeah. 
Plus, it's, it's always cool to hear about a new theropod. Yes. Especially a big one with bitey teeth. Yes. Thanks for giving <laughs> us the scoop. And we'll get on to our dinosaur of the day, Poikilopleuron, in just a moment. But first, we're going to pause for one more sponsor break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Poikilopleuron, which was a request by Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a tetanurin theropod that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now Normandy, France. And it looked like other theropods with the long tail, the long legs, and the elongate skull. It's estimated to be about 30 feet or 9 meters long, and it had long forelimbs, arms, that were about 60 centimeters or 24 inches long. That doesn't sound that long. It's got two foot long forelimbs on a 30 foot long body. Well, they could always be shorter, right? <laughs> I guess so. We've talked about that in other theropods. Poikilopleuron had 14 pairs of belly ribs also, which... We don't talk about the belly ribs too much. The type and only species is Poikilopleuron bucklandi. The genus name means varied ribs because it's got different kinds of ribs. There were three types found. And the species name is in honor of William Buckland, which you might have guessed. Poikilopleuron was first named by Jacques-Amand Udes de Longchamp in 1836. And he published more details in a monograph in 1837. The holotype unfortunately was destroyed in World War II. It was at the Musée de la Faculté de Sciences de Cannes. Hopefully I pronounced that okay. That's a bummer that they got destroyed. Although they were known to science for quite a while before they got destroyed. 1836? Yes. That's one of the oldest. Well, on the bright side, there are casts of the holotype that exist. So Better than Spinosaurus. Yes. And those casts are at the Natural History Museum in France, the national one, and the Yale Peabody Museum. The holotype included gastralia, you know, the ribs, uh, the tail vertebrae, a left forelimb, a hind limb, phalanges, and chevrons. And the gastralia, phalanges, and forelimb were cast, and now those are the plastotype. Plastotype. That's mm-hmm. like we keep hearing about more types. I know people just stick everything in front of type, but I guess that presumably that must mean that there is no holotype anymore. Well, it got destroyed. So the type is a plaster replica. Yeah. Now, when it was first named, they said that there were similarities between Poikilopleuron and Megalosaurus, which makes sense. Megalosaurus came up a lot in those days. Another large theropod. 
Yes. Now, De Longchamps chose the name, the species name, Bucklandi, after William Buckland, in case Poikilo Pleuron got synonymized with Megalosaurus later, and then it would keep the species name Bucklandi, because there's a Megalosaurus Bucklandi. Oh, that's confusing. Yeah. Or was it clever? I don't know. <laughs> In 1923, Friedrich von Huhn found Poikilo Pleuron to be a Megalosaurus, but a different species, not Bucklandi. So that, I guess, didn't really work out. So to avoid confusion, he renamed Poikilo Pleuron Bucklandi to Megalosaurus Poikilo Pleuron. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the first guy was playing 3D chess. And it's like, <laughs> if you synonymize these, you're going to have to come up with a new species name. <laughs> Maybe. The way that Poikilo Pleuron has been spelled has also been different over the years. It was only partially Latinized, so sometimes it's spelled with a, a C for the kilo part. Sometimes it's spelled poi, P-O-I, kind of like the Hawaiian dish. And that's closer to the original Greek as well. Mm. But now it's usually spelled P-O-E or maybe always. There were up to five species of Poikilo Pleuron. There was Poikilo Pleuron Gallicum, which Cope renamed to Lalaps Gallicus in 1869. There was Poikilo Pleuron Valens. That one is spelled with the C instead of the K. That was named in 1870 by Lady, but probably the fossil was Allosaurus. There was Poikilo Pleuron Pacillus, named by Richard Owen in 1876, then renamed by Cope in 1879 as Poikilo Pleuron Minor, but then that was renamed to Aristosuchus in 1887 by Harry Seeley. There was Poikilo Pleuron Schmidai, which is now a Nomum Dubium, and Poikilo Pleuron Vales Duensis, which was renamed as Dubraeosaurus. So now there's only the one species. Again, that's Poikilo Pleuron Bucklandi. Back to its original 1830s name. Yes. And that's considered to be valid. Just some fun quotes that I found while reading these older papers. In 1870, Lady wrote the Poikilo Pleuron had been viewed as a crocodilian, quote, but probably pertains to the dinosaurs. End quote, and then said it estimated to be about 25 feet or 7.6 meters long. Lady also wrote, quote, one of the most remarkable characters of the Poikilo Pleuron is the presence of a large medullary cavity within the bodies of the vertebrae, paralleled among living animals, so far as I know, only in the caudal vertebrae of the ox. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And in 1879, J.W. Hulk wrote, quote, one difficulty, and not the least, which besets the student beginning to study fossil reptiles is the great embarrassment occasioned by the not unfrequent description of the same reptile under different names involving the worse than merely useless multiplication of genera and species. Wherever, then, the identification of a newer with an older genus can be established, entailing as it should the abandonment of the newer generic name, it is to be looked on as a positive gain. I now submit to the criticism of the Geological Society the evidence which appears to me to identify beyond reasonable doubt Poikilopleuron Bucklandi of Eudes de Longchamps pair with an older acquaintance Megalosaurus Bucklandi. <laughs> an older acquaintance. Yeah. We're all well acquainted with Megalosaurus. So yes. Let's get rid of this Poikilopleuron guy. <laughs> I just, he was a, maybe one of the original lumpers. He yeah. did not like having, he calls it the great embarrassment, <laughs> having all these different names. <laughs> this is pretty funny. Yeah. 
Now, in 2003, Ronan Alain and Daniel Chur found that there was no overlapping material to compare Poikilopleuron and Megalosaurus, so whether or not they were synonymous is unclear, and that's why I say it's probably valid. Definitely not the first dinosaurs to be considered valid at the same time without any overlapping material. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day is that we have a really poor understanding of which dinosaurs laid which eggs. Oh, no. May not be news, but there <laughs> is a new angle to it that we heard from Josh Hedge at SVP. And basically what he was doing was looking at Elonga tulithidae, which are these long, narrow eggs usually considered to be from something like an oviraptor or an oviraptorosaurian. And in the past, they've sort of differentiated the different elongatulithid eggs by looking at categories of ornamentation. So Carpenter in 1999 came up with, I think it was five different types of ornamentation, so different types of bumps basically on the eggs. And then the idea was, okay, we can categorize these different eggs by what kind of bumps they have. And then in the future, we'll be able to say like, oh, this type of bump came from this dinosaur, came from whatever. But unfortunately, what we've found is that, quote, even a single egg can exhibit half of the recognized ornamentation types, end quote. Hmm. So there's so much variability even on a single egg that these different types of ornamentation really need more detail than just this egg has this ornamentation type, therefore it's from this dinosaur. And what we're hoping is that it's still not completely useless, <laughs> these ornamentation types. Right. And maybe we can figure out a pattern of if it has this type of ornamentation in the middle and this other one on the ends, then it came from this type of dinosaur and sort of embracing that complexity, but quantifying it so that we have some idea of which egg came from which dinosaur. Hedge basically used some software called Molar, which is usually related to teeth and sort of figuring out the bumps on teeth, quantifying how they differentiate, trying to do the same thing on dinosaurs, looked at protoceratops eggs, but they're probably from an oviraptor and lots of other eggs. And it seems like it has the potential to help us figure out, you know, which dinosaur eggs go with one another. But the next step is to look at pairs of eggs because there are some dinosaurs that had two functioning ovaries so they laid two eggs at a time and if we can see consistently that those pairs match up pretty well together then we might be able to refine this technique so even though right now we have a really bad understanding of where eggs came from and sort of classifying them that might be changing and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not yet a part of our community on Patreon, now is a great time to join because you get access to all of our bonus material that's including extra talks and posters from SVP, as well as extended interviews. You can join at patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.